texting. I was waiting. I didn't want to interrupt you. No, no, no. Yeah. I wasn't going to try to catch you unawares. (laughs) Oh, I'm. All right. Cool. All right. All right. Are we ready? Yeah, we're ready. Disney Plus password (laughs) sorted out. Let's (laughs) do it, man. Dude, Loki. Loki is good. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm caught up. I'm all caught up. Yeah. I'm stoked for this week. All right. Well, welcome to Something to Do, a podcast devoted exclusively to discussion and devotion of two of our favorite bands. Who's Gerdo and The Replacements. Each episode will be nerding out about all aspects of two of the most influential bands in the pantheon of American rock acts. I'm Jude, and this is my co-host, Greg. How's it going, Greg? It's going great now that I got you on here, and we're getting to talk uh, talk about some good music, and got a killer guest for this one. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, it has been a while. We're well aware. We'll, we'll address that in a minute. Um, but you know, when I, when we first threw around the idea for this, um, for this episode or for this podcast, rather, I remember one of the people that actually either reached out, I forget how it came about, but I'd like to, I'm going to say he reached out to me cause it makes me feel special, <laughs> but it was probably the other way around. But, um, <laughs> Scott McLeod, I'm friend, friends with Scott on social media yeah and um you know he played in the band uh soul well no i'm gonna say plays present tense because they do still play uh soul side uh girls against boys mm-hmm. and also the side project new wet kojak and it was awesome to talk to him about the replacements and of course you know stuff about those bands that he was in some of them get mentioned and uh i think it's a really fun conversation we're Mm -hmm. eternally grateful to scott for taking time and speaking with us yeah so but i guess before we get into the interview uh what's new what's new so let's see well for starters uh dating this podcast a little bit but uh live music is occurring again bob's about to go back out on tour right Um, yeah so what's the official name of the tour? It's um, it's the, oh goodness, why don't I know this? This is what we would say in Where it, Went World as do your homework. <laughs> like we didn't do it. I didn't do my, <laughs> uh, Distortion, it's it's called uh, the Distortion and Blue Hearts Tour. Gotcha. I thought it was the um, other way around. See, I didn't want to, I let yeah, you look so, it up so I didn't look stupid. That's so, why. you know, Blue Hearts, came out last year we did an episode i was gonna say check out uh the episode on that from last year um but came out september of last year obviously he didn't get to tour on it so now he finally gets to go out but also as we've talked about distortion is the box set Mm -hmm. uh the series of box sets two for vinyl and then it was like a one cd box set um not one cd in the box it was you know, the box was like, I don't even know how many, I think it's like 24 CDs or yeah. something. Um, and I believe he, they just announced the fourth and final installment of the vinyl one, which I have to say for somebody that buys a lot of vinyl, I did not get these box sets, which is rare for me, but it's just, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of uh, income. A lot of yeah. income for four eight LP boxes, but um, they look cool. Uh, yeah. I'm sure the booklet and everything inside. I actually debated 
getting the CD one, even though I don't even have a CD player except for in the car, but just to like take up shelf space. But that's pretty yeah. ridiculous. I think I saw a former guest on the podcast, Jeff Dean, um, guitar player. Yeah, he got Paris the Futures. Yeah, among a bunch of other men. So he he got one I saw on Instagram. It looked awesome. Yeah. Can I be honest? Yeah. And I'm sorry. I know. I'm. I know. Bob listens to this constantly. You know, He's been constantly. waiting for this episode. Yeah. I um. I don't like the redone covers. Yeah. Um. I'm. You know. I guess my thing is like okay. I I have the standard versions of almost every release of his. Now the box set is the first time that modulate as well as the loud playing grooves, you know, uh, well, yeah, loud playing grooves, the, you know, his other, yeah, that came out at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not on vinyl, like individually. Yeah. But like, you know, the other stuff, it just, it's weird seeing like sugar copper blue with like this, like random cover. I just, I, yeah. I don't like it. I'm going to be honest. Yeah. I, I think that that was part of what, um, didn't have me chomping at the bit as, as they say, you know? Yeah. But, um, I can, there's still a part of me that does regret not getting them because I know that they're going to be very costly to obtain. Uh, I'm sure very soon, if not already, like, I don't know how much the, you know, first one goes for. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I was, I think it's cool. Um, and I can never have too much Bob in my life. Yeah. But uh, I did actually pass, which again, rare for me because I end up getting all these things, which we'll come to in a second, actually. Um, <laughs> you know, they keep making them. I keep, I keep buying them. Um, yeah. I can but- totally see I'm oh, sorry. I can totally see that point, though. But um, to I agree with you, though, that like sugar album covers in my mind are like iconic. I mean, we talked about that on the file under Easy Listening. Um, the art for that album in particular i love so much yeah well my my take is even if the album cover sucks that's the cover you know what yeah. i mean like yeah, yeah, yeah. like it's it's like i like i like to have i like to have the option of having a different cover like hey you, you want to do like an updated cover that's fine but i think the the original cover should still be available um but it's a small gripe they did that for the um we're getting off track no i promise it won't go too down an alley here but they did that for the um when they reissued archers of loaf like vv yeah and and you know what i trash heroes and i was i was kind of bummed about it they like changed it to like the illustrations and it was these kind of like i thought these like really cool kind of um photographs that had a lot of character to them yeah no that thought of them too and it's like the originals are are hard to come by now you'll have people too that'll be like well tough you don't have the originals you shouldn't be able to get something that looks exactly the yeah. same and but, those people um, are called assholes <laughs> yeah get or like we call them again you know to use a, a hardcore terminology gatekeepers yeah like you know like they're like i want this all for me you can't know about this, but yeah, no, the archers did do that. And, um, I don't know. I don't discord does it on occasion, 
and then sometimes they don't. It's like sort of arbitrary the stuff they decide to do, like Dag Nasty. Um, but see, Discord's kind of always done that, like changing colors. So it, yeah. it makes a little more sense. Like you know, how many different colors of the Minor Threat, EP, you know, the right, 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 one with, where it's Alex sitting on the steps, you know, that iconic the discography cover that was also the seven inch. It was also the 12 inch. Like they've done a bunch of colors of that. Yeah. So having a Dag Nasty, can I say, you know, being so used to it on purple, but then them changing it to green was kind of like, okay, I guess it makes sense. Cause you know, they've done it before, but yeah, yeah I'm, I'm way off, way off track, but I, uh, I definitely, I do have some regret not buying the box sets, but you figured like, they were all to come out this year and that would be like $800 of Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they're awesome. If anybody has them. Like, yeah. Like yeah. let us know. Like, yeah. Jeff, like Jeff Scott. I'm like, just take, take a bunch of pictures and send them to us. Yeah. We'll, we'll post them on our hopping gram. Yeah. So speaking of records and uh, feeling compelled to, you know, the completest, we have, I'm holding in my hands here, actually. Uh, this is also dating it, the pod a little bit, but about a week ago was Record Store Day, the first drop. And there were a bunch of cool things. I feel like the past couple, there have been like, well, <laughs> we've talked about them on here. There's been the replacements, um, had a couple things. Uh, they had the Inconserated was the one. Mm -hmm. Then uh, there was a Bob Mould Live. These were the drops last year. And this one is uh, a new outtakes and alternates. Pleased to meet me. It's called The Pleasure's All Yours. Um, the hype sticker on the front says, rare outtakes and alternate versions from the Pleased to Meet Me sessions on vinyl for the first time. Includes Birthday Gal, Beer for Breakfast, alternate versions of Alex Chilton, Can't Hardly Wait, plus more. Limited edition of 10,000. Um, so that is a lot, but I will say that a lot of times with these, like once they are gone, they're hard to find. Yeah. And then you end up having to pay double the price that you would have if you just pulled the trigger. So yeah. like my dear friend Javier says, the time to buy it is when you see it. So if you haven't gotten this, I would quickly look for it because in a couple months it's going to be hard to get. Yeah. And uh, gosh, so there will be another record store day in July. Uh, the, the first one had a lot more stuff I was interested in for the drop. Yeah. What's dropping in July? But July, my number one want, this has nothing to do well, we could, we, I could maybe Matt Pinfield it to be, uh, do it. It's your super <laughs> to be, Greg. to be, uh, <laughs> to be something to do where the, Connect so those dots. the, the 1993 major label debut by Seattle band Tad. All right. Inhaler will be on vinyl. Now that album was produced by Jay Maskus of dinosaur jr. Who had a bunch of records on SST which are beloved Hooskers. There you go. There you go. On. So good. Good connection. There you go. But yeah, Tad and Hale. I'm, I'm psyched because it's hard to find a copy of that right now for under like a hundred bucks. So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. A friend of mine is in 
Portland and he just found a copy of like original cover of Eight Way Santa like at a thrift store there. Um, that he, I think it was like hundred bucks maybe. Yeah, that sounds about right. I definitely would like, would like um, that one too yeah. at some point. Tad, great band. Yes, indeed. Um, what else? Split Singles got a new record coming out. Jason Narducci's band um, who plays bass in the Bob Mould band. Um, I'm stoked about that one. Um, I think they, they like was just recording a video or something like that. Yeah, did you see who's in the band? No. It's a, well... I don't want to. I don't want to speak out of school, but I know that um, Mike Mills from REM is is, is in it. So that's already cool. And then, um, but I believe Worcester's on drums. Good, awesome. I'm 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 checking now uh, to see, but um, isn't that neat? You can just like look shit up real quick. Um, cause I think he announced it, uh, no, it's not, I, I guess it's not, uh, but it's, it is Mike Mills and someone named Nora O'Connor. Cool. So That's pretty cool, name. man. Yeah. Nice. Super cool. Excited for it. Um, and that's it, I guess for, for, for our, do you remember it's been so long, that since we did the last one, so I'm assuming we didn't make any mistakes. Yeah. But we will just say that like we were talking and we, summertime opens up a little bit for both of us. And yeah, my work schedule now too, I'm, I'm free during the week. I'm actually saying this to you now on here on recording. So it's official, but yeah, I don't. Um, so weeknights are a little easier to do even like around this, the time that we're doing this now. Um, so we plan on having some more, but if not, we, we just said we're kind of like how the Henry Rollins, you know, the Henry and Heidi podcast is just like they they come when they come. Yeah. You get what you get and you're going to love don't it. Don't get upset. Yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, that's all I have for the intro. You have anything else? No, that's it. Uh, yeah. So, so why don't we get on to the interview? Huh? Yeah. So let's, let's talk with Scott. goes full circle right cool interesting that's interesting yeah right I, I knew i knew that i've heard that name from somewhere new rising suns that was also like a 90s was it a 90s thing or yeah they, they yeah. did um they formed like 98 got signed to virgin it was like the classic you know got signed to virgin recorded this album with ted ted played bass on it because i couldn't wow. get a bass player and then um you know, got a, like mixed by Andy Wallace and all this right. stuff and then got dropped and right. uh, it sat in obscurity. Right. Back in the 90s gold rush, as, as we call it, it's like all the, you know, all the labels had so much money. They were just like buying, you know, like, oh, yeah, sure. You can have a whole bunch, you know, no problem. You have you have some money and you have some money and like, let's see what sticks. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. like we 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 talked about a lot because they actually had they recorded this album with Ted and uh the label heard it and they were basically ah here's here's eight grand more go record some more songs so what they're what we did the episode for was they 
they went back in and did like five songs that have never been released. Right so they're, they're putting it out. Um, so oh, we, cool. we did that. Cause like two of the guys uh, were in bands that were on Rev. Uh, Drew, the drummer was in that band, Into Another. I don't know if you remember them. I do remember them, yeah. Um, and then uh, Garrett was in Texas is the reason. I remember them too. Yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah. Absolutely. I remember that era. That, that's the 80s. Yeah, that's like the... The, Those are 80s bands, right? Yeah. No, they were not. They're 90s. They're, uh, they're 90s also. Texas is the reason it was 90s. I always thought it was Into Another, though. Was, I think Into Another was a band that like Soulside played with from my end, I thought. Maybe uh, it's a later. Or did you play with Underdog, Richie's? Other Underdog. Band. That's what it was. Yeah. Underdog. That's right. Underdog became Into Another. Maybe we didn't play with Into Another, then it was Underdog. Yeah. 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 Into Another was like nine. Like they were literally like started, I think, in 90. Okay. Um, and they same thing signed to a major. They had a record on Hollywood. Right. Um Texas was about to sign a capital before they broke up. It was a crazy time. It was a crazy time. Yeah, but there was a lot of money in rock music as I remember. I remember that time and you know they, the labels had made so much money from just the change of format from basically vinyl sales to CDs. You know, CDs brought in this enormous influx of cash to all these labels. Everybody, a lot on back catalogs, because everybody who was listening to the Beatles or whatever, they had to buy it on a new format to be able to, to, to deal with it or to listen to it again. And so it just created this enormous firestorm of cash, I think is kind of what happened. And also back then, there was a lot of record sales still happening. So after Nirvana and around Nirvana, it was like, who's next? Everybody needs money. You know, get, get everything. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I was thinking too, like, uh, you know, you guys were on DGC because I, I had the, in my car, I had that DGC rarities comp. And I was like, oh, if they did a volume two, there would have been like a probably Girls Against Boys, Jawbreaker. We had a couple. That's right. Jawbreaker was on DGC too. Yeah. And then they, we were on DGC, but then it, yeah, then it folded. It fold like DGC basically folded into, folded it back into Universal. I think it was a few months after our record came out. So it was pretty terrible timing, but there was a lot of weird things happening at that moment. But what was your yeah, experience? One of them. Oh, go ahead. Hmm? I was, I was no, say, no. What was your experience like on DGC? You were kind of getting into that, I guess. Um, it was like, you know, I could, actually it was, um, we were, because we were also, it, we were on Touch and Go in the, when we saw, in the, I think the first Touch and Go record is in 93 and stuff. So, when all this stuff started happening around these labels coming around, we were not really that interested in anything because we loved being on touch and go. So it was like, we didn't really entertain. We talked, you know, people wanted to meet us. We talked to like Atlantic, a couple of places, but we were like, well, we're, you know, we're on this for a while. And in a strange way that kind of like the fact that we were reluctant to do things by the time the cruise yourself came out, the second record in 94, then things started to get really crazy you know people were following us everywhere and and trying to sign us and things like that but we but we and um but we stayed we had a three record contract deal i mean a hand like the handshake deal with Corey and touch and go we were going to do that so we told labels look and we might, we might be interested but we got a whole other record to do so if that's one of the stipulating points and yeah in the end we kind of thought we, we did sign after we signed actually, then the third rec, Touch and Go record, House of Jesus B, came out in 96. And we actually, around the same time, had signed to Geffen already. They, they had to wait another year or more until the other record came out. But I mean, otherwise, the relationship, we didn't have a bad relationship with them per se. I mean, we were, 
as a band sort of into a weird place and we sort of you know freakonic and the record we did I, it was we didn't expect it would be like the the only record we could do for dgc but basically by the time that record came out in 98 it was like i said a few months later that they were like gone like there was no late all the people that we had signed up to work with were gone like the whole thing was just gutted like the so that was, thing too that happened sadly like you hear about right. it and, yeah you sign up to work with a bunch of people and we had plenty we thought about it long and hard and you know we weren't we, you know, we're, we're, we're not, I shouldn't say weren't, we still play and stuff, but we're, we're not, we weren't and we're like a really uh, mainstream sounding band. So we didn't have any like false ideas about record sales and stuff. We thought, well, maybe we should try this or otherwise we might regret it. You know, we would never try it for or something. And so we did that. And then unfortunately we never had a chance to go back and like make more records and see what would have happened. So that was like the end of that. Then you got to do the, be with Jade Tree. Uh, right. Tim. Then when we finally did, what happened to us was yeah, also the traditional story. We basically were, once the universal merger happened, that's what they called it. It was like basically get Geff and folded into, into the thing and wasn't there for a while. And so we were kind of basically going to be shoved over to Interscope, I think. But we were in the position, like you're kind of talking about with New Rising Suns. It was like, unlike the three record firm contract we had with Geffen, this was back into like a demo situation. You know, it was like, sort of like, yeah, that label's not there anymore. So maybe we'll put you on this label, but keep recording songs for demos. Yeah, and that's like what happened to them. And, and they, I actually asked, I was like, I was like, do you think if like, did you think about shopping the record to indie labels and stuff? And they were like, it took, they said getting dropped took so much wind out of their sails that they were just like, we're done. Yeah. So they never. We couldn't even do that because we had. It was one of those things where our contract was for three firm. So basically, our new owner was Interscope or Universal something, and so we didn't have the option to go out of it. We would have been breaking our contract, even though the, the fact that our, the original label we were signed to within that umbrella no longer existed, we were still owned. So we were basically, and what took the sales out of us was that process of suddenly your your band is you know you can't do anything frustrations start to mount between even between us we're a, we're a band we get along really well still to this day but at that time there's all these frustrations about what we should do like should we insist should we sue them should we get out of the contract like what do we do how many songs how many times should we try the demo thing what do we do and then it starts to be it starts to be not fun <laughs> To make yeah. music so it sounds like i know <laughs> we, we uh for where it went we did an episode where we talked to the guys in quicksand and um yeah i know i know walter yeah yeah and we, we talked to al alan talked about uh playing with seaweed and they signed to hollywood and same thing happened but seaweed were basically like they were like well we're gonna do a record with merge and alan was right. like well isn't that gonna break your con they're like we don't care. <laughs> they, right. just, they, they just, they and just they did, did it. Yeah. They, put out the, they did the record. They're like, they were just like, whatever. We don't care. Right. And actually maybe that, maybe that would have been the right thing to do because it's sort of a difficult, I mean, I think that bands are like, especially, I and mean, even our band, we were really comfortable in the touch and go situation of how things work and you make a record and even just the way the music sounded and stuff like even honestly, with the bigger budget of Geffen and stuff that we had for the Freakonica record, it actually 
in our case, it was sort of didn't really serve us that well to have all this time suddenly. It was actually better for us. A lot of the limitations of independent record release and stuff was actually suitable to our music. The, the, the concept of you go to a studio, you have five days, that's the budget done. Whatever you're done with in those five days, that's your record. Instead of it being like, actually, if you're not done, you can think about it forever and ever and ever and ever. And, and that when you open that, that kind of Pandora's box up of just never finishing things or keeping to second guess everything, it's also a different way of making music. I mean, that primal thing of so many indie records I love, which even talking about the replacements is also, I think, sometimes based on those limitations that are that are set that are kind of economic limitations. It's like you don't have you don't have a week to try every single guitar amp that's in the studio and then still be unhappy. You have to right. like you have to make decisions and like and do the songs. You know, well, it's like let it be replacements that yeah. I don't that would have never sounded the way it did if they were you know on a major and it was recorded in 1990 or when, whatever because oh, right. it would have been labored over they wouldn't have had you know they would have been like well you better take off uh Gary Gary's got a boner or what you know what I mean it, right it wouldn't be what it is exactly and, and and it would have been all these people whispering in their ears already at that point well you sure you want to do this you sure you want to, you know just basically creating an atmosphere maybe even an unintentional atmosphere. This is also, you know, music is a commercial thing or, or you're making records, you're selling something. And so people whispering these things that kind of get in your ears, like, right, maybe I should think about that. Like you say, maybe there shouldn't be a song called Gary's Got a Boner, or maybe we need to make the guitar leads a little bit less crazy sounding. All the things that I love about the record might've been taken out of it just by second guessing and fear, basically. It's like, it's one of the great things about the, legacy i think of 80s punk and post-punk stuff is just those limitations that, that bands had where it's like you just got to go in there and ferociously knock this thing out and it kind of has this you can hear that when you listen to the record you can hear that it's there's wild moments i mean i can hear that i'm like raw power even i mean iggy pop was like, like you can hear like it's kind of it, it wouldn't be as good if it sounded better you know right <laughs> Absolutely. so i guess to to you know, move to the replacements. Yeah. I was surprised when you had said that you were, you're originally from Minnesota. Cause I was just I was, assumed everyone from DC was just always from DC. Yeah. I was born in Minnesota. It's kind of funny. I, I was born in Minnesota in Rochester. So I think that's, that's right outside St. Paul or a little ways outside of St. Paul because my, my father's side of the family this McLeod people that came from the Scotland or whatever, that's where they settled in or whatever. And so that's where my, my grandfather lived and my dad grew up there. Um, but when I was three years, three years old or so, we moved, the family moved to Washington, DC. But throughout the time when I, since I started getting into punk and indie, indie stuff in the eighties, I learned that like from good friends, like Julie Penabianco who worked at Capitol and lots of other people, like people were telling me like, you know, when you're born in Minnesota, in Minnesota, you're a Minnesota. So you're still part of us or something. So I always had this like affinity with Minnesota and also those things as a kid, like I love the Minnesota Vikings and stuff like that because I was born in Minnesota, you know, it's these little. And so also early on, I kind of got attached to the, to the, to the twin cities bands from there and listening to them in the same kind of way of interest. And also it was a great, great amount of music came out of there. I mean, even starting with, I was thinking about this, 
before our interview, even with like movies like Purple Rain and stuff like that. I mean, I saw Purple Rain in 85 and like this was also mythologizing sort of Minneapolis. And I was like, I kind of felt an, a, some identity to that, even though I've only lived there as a, as a very little kid. So, yeah, because like you figure Minnesota, you had what, Dylan, Prince, like there's a rich history of music. So I guess how how did you like wh where did you come in in real time on the replacements catalog like did you learn about them uh pretty early on or it was pretty it was i guess it was i mean pretty early on i started basically throughout in dc and so i was born in 67 so i moved to dc in 1970 with my family and then it wasn't until like 83 or so i started getting into the dc punk scene and and the DC punk scene back then also in general, punk scenes, alternative music, whatever you want to call it, was still quite localized, you know? So it's like basically, which is a great thing about it. I think that's why you have so many different styles of music throughout the country were happening. And it actually was, you know, the Chicago sound was a little bit different than the Austin sound and the LA sound or the Orange County. All these things were a little different. I remember, so replacements were not like big in the DC punk scene, like, but I, there was one guy in my band, Soulside, the first band in DC. He was, Chris Thompson was very, he was always kind of like turning me on to things. Cause I, I, I came from a classic rock background really. And before I joined the punk thing. And so he was the one telling me, oh, you gotta check out this band, the replacements, you gotta do all those things. So that was around 85 or 86, I think that I started to get into them. And by 87, I was working at Tower Records. And that's when Please to Meet Me came out, which was like a big record, you know? But I remember the stacks and stacks. And I just, from that point, I was really hooked at that point and going back and listening all the time to, especially those earlier records, Let It Be, Tim. I mean, those those were constant plays for me. And, and in our bands, when we would travel on the road, we'd be listening to that. Those, kind of, those records would be in the circuits of Soul Sides, like listening cassettes you know in the van stuff like that so i guess that i don't know if that's is that early 85 probably not early i mean it's early it's early all of it's early <laughs> to me because they, they were done they were done by the time you know but i mean i was i was born 81 so you know sorry, okay, sorry right. ma so, was you know brand new when i was born um right i always found it interesting like dc because you're right i never really hear too much you know you, you kind of hear with dc like they're always like listen to the ruts and the damned like there was like that's the the dc but did you find it interesting when uh what about when brian baker played with tommy for a little bit we like did you did that kind of trip that's, you that's out a, was that, which band was that um he did uh oh my gosh why is it so was that junkyard no no what's tommy's what was bash and pop he played oh. in like bash oh, and i pop. forgot that he played in bash and pop no, it's funny. Tommy's the only replacement I've ever met. And I've met him through a lot of other friends. I met him in LA. I've seen him, it's been a while, but like he was playing in Guns N' Roses. Richard Fortas from Guns N' Roses is a good friend of mine going back to the New York days. And Richard played in Love Spit Love with Richard Butler and the Psychedelic Furs guys. And um, so I've met Tommy and stuff before. But um, yeah, I, I think that in DC, it was like, like any local scene, it was like the younger, we were like, as a, I was only, I was 17 or so, but the other, like Ian McKay and everybody else, they're not that, that much older. If you, it's like a one high school generation, let's say older, but it was, 
back then, I think those local scenes were so powerful. There was this, it was like, it was, you were so connected to it right away that really your own local scene was way more important than anything else. I mean, I remember going to like see Rites of Spring support, you know, I forget what kind of bands like sort of green on red or whatever, just some bands from Georgia. And, you know, there'd be like the club would be packed for Rites of Spring and everybody would leave. I mean, literally there'd be like five people for the, for the, for the national headliner. You know, that's how powerful the local scene was and stuff. So replacements, I don't, didn't fit into that at that time. Um, and so, yeah, it came a little bit later, I guess. And so we weren't, and also with Soulside, we weren't making music like replacements or anything. It, it, I thought, I think what I turned me on to the replacements was more like it was something in between the classic rock I'd grown up with and alternative music. So it, it had, it was somewhere straddling that, that, that line. Same. Yeah. I'm completely with you. And you mentioned kind of, uh, I think pleased to meet me was like you said, the first like real time one. Yeah. That was, I was uh, coming in after the band, you know, broke up. I'm, I was born in 84. Um, but that was the right. first one I heard. And like, it was the same. I was like, this is connecting to big musical things for me. Like the kind of punk stuff that I was into as right. well. Um, and stuff that like my parents had kind of, you know, conditioned me to, to be interested in and to expose me to. But yeah, kind of circling back a little bit, you mentioned, um, you know, the Guns N' Roses connection, obviously. I was just kind of thinking how, um, I mean, Chinese Democracy, right, the, the album that Tommy's on is sort of like, in some ways, the kind of quintessential example of like having too much time and money and people involved. And um, how long is that? That was in production for like what, 10 years? Yeah, I, I, I think it was 10 years, yeah. It yeah, was like 10, 10 or 15 years, years something yeah. crazy. And yeah. I remember thinking that was nuts that Tommy, you know, played in Guns N' Roses just because, you know, I know him as Tommy from The Replacements. Yeah. Um, yeah, me too, it was kind of wild. I mean, I, I, I would see Guns N' Roses. I live in Vienna and Austria, but, but I would see them. I saw a couple shows. I think I think I've been here long enough. I saw a couple shows when Tommy was in it. I didn't see him at that time because it's like seeing Guns N' Roses backstage. I do. I, I can see Richard, but it's not easy to see everybody. But the it was kind of interesting. Yeah, you're right. It's kind of like you wouldn't you wouldn't think of a guy from their placements being in <laughs> Guns N' Roses. But I got the impression that you're right about that time. How much time it took that that Axel. Rose went through many periods of like what the record would sound should be like and starting with like Nine Inch Nails type things. Richard Ford has even told me at one point that he was really into a Girls Against Boys record, Venus Luxury, Number One Baby, even listening to that a lot and like just sort of trying to figure out directions. But then it took so many years. I got the impression they made the record several times <laughs> in different sort of styles or something until they finally put it out i've actually never i haven't listened to that record really very much it's pretty wild like you can you can you can tell that it cost a lot of money like i think they did stuff with roy thomas baker like they did like you know you, you just tell was labored over but yeah tommy's on i think almost all song because like that's the other thing is so many band members came and went in the time Right, but like Tommy is on, like say there's 13 tracks, he's probably on like 10 of them or something. Wow, that's cool. Um, yeah, I think you're right. He was in it for he was in it for a long time. I also saw Tommy. I met him also in in New York because he was doing. This would have been wow, late 90s, yeah, maybe late 90s. He was also he would sometimes do these solo shows and stuff. He played at one down in my neighborhood in the East Village in New York, and I went down there with some friends and some other again Minneapolis people 
that I knew through other things and just like was there. It was a cool show. It was like, it, he was like, had his, you know, cool look going on and just like acoustic guitar. Very, very, that was very replacement-y, his like solo thing. But um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting how I suppose um, Guns N' Roses has, you know, has really become one of those bands that's like just going on and on. It has a wide, there's people coming and going and, uh, uh, you know, it's a, that's a real franchise. Band. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> did you, um, did you get to see the replacements when they were, you know what? I never run? saw the replacements. I never saw them. I never saw them because the time I could have seen them would have been when I would, if I could have gone with my friend, Chris Thompson, but I didn't know enough about them in that this would have been like 84 or something. He would come and tell me, yeah, I went to this show at nine 30 club was the club we had in DC that everybody played. It's a legendary club. It's moved now, but the old location was pretty small was the thing. And, you know, even then, I mean, I would have been in high school at that time. So it's like, I didn't go to every show. It was like later on I went to shows. And so by the, by the second half of the eighties, replacements were probably a little bit too big to play at that club. So I didn't go see them at like university of Georgetown or something. I, I wasn't at the time. I wasn't that much of a fan. It was like only after 89, it was again, Pleased to Meet Me came out and that record was like also on constant rotation in the store. And that has a way of inlaying things into your brain. So it was around that time that my real sort of, you know, um, interest in the band coalesced sort of. And like, and then even though I love Pleased to Meet Me, the records that took me over around that time even more so were the early, were those earlier ones. Like, especially... I think I was posting like about uh, a few, I don't do that much social media, but I was talking about let it be and just like, cause I was doing during the pandemic, a few covers on acoustic just for fun. And yeah, I was going to say they were cool. And, and, and I was like, basically listen, I was thought I should do a replacements one. And I was listening to please to me. And I was like, damn, I mean, every song on this record is so awesome. I mean, I can't pick one. It's like, it's just, I felt like I wanted to do the whole record. I mean, I wanted to like go to a studio just for me, you know, just, just because it's like, I love every song on it. I mean, it's amazing record. It is. Uh, Cause I know I've been there with bands too, where like you get into it and, you know, coming from, especially I'm thinking the DC punk scene. Like I always think about how my first show was Fugazi. Wow, so okay. I, I was also kind of spoiled because it's like, you see this incredible band. They're like your favorite band. You know, they're still one of my favorite bands and I paid $5. So like to <laughs> right. me, like I'd see shows that were like $12 or whatever. And I'd be like, right. no, nah, that's too much. So I think of all the stuff that I missed that I could have seen, like, you know, like Radiohead playing, you know, okay. Computer was probably like $15 and I didn't go or whatever. Right. Cause you know, you're, you get so used to seeing bands in these small places. Like I didn't have, like I didn't go to a big rock concert until I'd been going to shows for like four years. Right. You know what I mean? So it was like far, like some people it's like, Oh yeah, I saw, you know, Aerosmith at, at this giant arena. And then I discovered punk and I was going to the small shows. Like I thought all shows were like that, you know? Right. Um, it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of like me. I mean, I saw right in this same time to explain kind of why, even though I liked the replacements, I never saw them in the same time. At this small 930 club, it was like 350 capacity. I mean, I saw the Pixies there. I saw Jane's Addiction there. I saw Ministry. I saw you know, all these really big things in this tiny room. You know, it was like sold out, of course. But within that, and you're still in high school, you don't go to every single no. show. I mean, 
<laughs> Not unless you're sneaking out. <laughs> right. Or or you have a lot of money to burn. I mean, there's always those considerations. Like, like later on in New York, since I live in the East Village, I would I would go around and see shows almost every night. But it was also like around that time in the late in the mid 90s, it was like I kind of knew a lot of the venues. So people would like know me enough to be like, oh, it's you. You want to just poke your head in for a second. It's cool. Just go in there. You know, it's like kind of free to walk around. But I if I was going to stay, I would pay. But I could just like look around sort of. And that was awesome, too. But unfortunately, yeah, I always I always kind of bad. I never saw the replacements, especially back in that time. That's one of the one of the ones that sticks with me. Like, damn, I wish I would have seen that. So you didn't see any of the reunion they did. Uh... I also didn't see. I also had, didn't see any of the reunions thing. And also, I think I'm a little bit disadvantaged from that, from living in Europe for so long, because I, I think that they did stuff like Riot Fest and things I heard and stuff. But I, I'm not in the States, so those, those kind of things are not an option for me. Um, yeah, I was hoping they would do like, we saw them, Jude and I saw them together. They played like an outdoor venue here, but it wasn't a fest. It was like at least, because like, I, I, those big festivals, they're, I don't mind yeah. going like I wouldn't want that to be my only time seeing the band, you know. Like I agree, and also I think for bands performing, I think it's kind of it's kind of lame or a bummer when bands only perform those big those big things. And like, if you want to see us come to this enormous thing with a hundred thousand people, it's kind of like, wow, I'll come see you if you play in a sure, make it a big big club, okay, but still a club, you know, something yeah. that I can. Yeah. So yeah. we saw them. We luckily saw them. Was like them and Super Chunk. So I mean, that's a that's a great oh, that's cool. combination, yeah. but. You know, I I had obviously never seen them back in the day, and it was just cool to see. I don't know if they'll ever do anything else. Paul is uh, such yeah. an interesting. Like that's the other thing. He's like he's such a character. Um, is he? No, I want to ask a question. You guys are are you guys in you're in Minneapolis or where where are you? No, I'm I'm outside Philly, and he's in Jersey. Okay, so you're on the East Coast. Okay, so you don't live in Minneapolis. It's like or or right. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's funny. I, I was thinking about this coming in, too. Since I only really met Tommy, I only know a bunch of friends of theirs. I never like I never met Paul Westerberg or anything and to, to know what he's like as a person or to have. A, I always thought like I could get, you know, it'd be fun to talk to him because we might have some things in common and joke around. But I don't know what's funny about him or if he's if he's a character or what kind of character. Did you read uh, the, the book ever? Trouble Boys? No. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. Is, is that a good book? It's it's an excellent. book. It's honest. Like really you know, that. I read a lot of rock bios. I would say it's if it's not the if it's not my favorite, it's definitely in the top like three. Um, it's called Trouble Trouble Boys. Yeah, by Bob Meir, who we actually talked to Bob uh, on here before. Okay. Um, he just that recently won. He just recently won a Grammy for his liner notes in uh, when they did that dead man's pop collection you know the Ooh, uh, right the I've um, heard that. don't uh, tell a soul like demo yeah. thing um but it's paul he's he, he's just a character he's incredible um yeah. and there's like parts of the book that'll make you laugh out loud and there's parts that are super depressing you know the right. whole story of of bob stinson yeah. is pretty yeah sad. pretty bleak yeah um, absolutely right yeah I mean, I don't know. This, I don't know this the story. I can, but I can imagine, and I can imagine. I mean, I know enough about the story. Like I remember, you know, I remember things. I remember about the replacements that I'm sure would be in the book, or things like um, 
you know, certainly a lot of drinking and stuff at shows. And I remember funny things like that. Sometimes Paul would have to like tell Bob, it's that one, you know, which song is it? It's that one that goes like, you need like, and just like have to say yeah. funny code words for songs. And also the legend, I guess, kind of legendary Saturday Night Live performance that was like totally bizarre or something. I think I looked at that and it didn't seem that bad to me or anything. But I suppose back in that time or something, it seemed like a, I don't know what, a blown opportunity. I don't know why it was sort of known as sort of a, a kind of messed up moment. But I'd love to read that. I'm actually, I also like reading um, rock bios. I recently read one, a great one, it, about Lou Reed. Um, yeah. Lots of other ones. Yeah, it's 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 very well written and like, um, I think I think you'll enjoy if you like the band. You'll learn a lot and like he he goes into detail about all the records and the songs and you know their experience of signing. You know, because it's because yeah. they they signed and it's kind of crazy to think that they did they did four albums for a major, right. Um, and, and also like, in quick, yeah, in quick succession because back right. then it was too fast. It wasn't like three or four years between albums back then. It was like every year you did an album, more or less. Yeah, yeah and they they did. Uh, it was almost like they, the label back then gave them chances. Like, okay, this one didn't do well. Well, we'll get them on the next one. Where it seemed like by the time of the '90s, like you were talking about, it was like if you didn't, if you weren't, you know, Nevermind or Green Day, Dookie. Yeah, like you're that done. was it. You were done. Uh, You're done. Yeah. Or, or like, think about someone like Leonard Cohen or, well, in our case too, is I think it was kind of the thing where at DG, they had Sonic Youth. So they were like, oh, his band will sell millions and millions of records. So it's kind of like, well, we don't really need five Sonic. We don't, we, we don't really need five Sonic Youth type bands that, that, that appeal to a smaller niche market. Like, yeah, we're, they're in the business of hits. Yeah. But you're right. I wish it would have been that time. I mean, artists like Leonard Cohen or so many others, I've read their bios and it's like, it's amazing how they keep getting to do records over and over again until it finally clicks. It's like pretty great, you know, pretty great time. I think if you want to develop, it's kind of yeah. hard to like have one shot and then like, that's it. You're done. Not only are you done by the time you get out of the ringer of it, you just feel psychologically destroyed. So, so, so it takes a long time if you want to even restart again, something you're kind of like, just like, that's it. I'm, you know, forget it. You know, it's like, I don't really want to deal with this crap anymore. So a little, I guess a little off topic, but where, so you did the one record for Geffen. Where do you rank that? Like in your, in the, in the pantheon of girls against boys, like, do you think like, cause that was the one, for me, I saw you guys on that tour. Um, mm -hmm. And that was, again, I was in high school, so it was like, couldn't go right. to every show. But um, I think it was like, I'd heard the name. Like, this is where the major label, I guess, worked because I, I knew right. the name. You know, I knew Fugazi and I knew everything. And then when the album came out, you know, this is back in the CD era and Best Buy, I think, had like the circulars. And it was like, you know, Girls Against Boys' new album comes out this week and it's, 7.99 so i was like cool okay. i'll try that and i really <laughs> yeah. i really enjoyed freakonica but i do remember yeah. people you know of course it was the 90s so it was like when a band signed you'd have those people that no matter how good the record was like they'd be like oh no i'm not into this i mean i can't tell you how many people say yeah that, like the shutter to think pony express record that they don't like and i'm like you're fucking crazy you know. Yeah, right. I mean, I think, there's, I think that there's, for me, there's, I think there's some really good things on it. I think, again, we kind of, we kind of fell down the rabbit hole with all that time first time around. So it doesn't rank in my highest, but I think part of that's just the difficulty 
of making it. Like, it's kind of difficult for me to listen to that record that much because it's just, I remember all the things sort of we were trying to do and some of them sort of worked out and other ones sort of didn't. So that's one of the hardest ones for me to get my head around. It's really, my favorite Girls Against Boys records are the three that are on Touch and Go because, and again, I think that's mostly mirrored by the, or the reason for that is more like this was the really exciting, really exciting moment of the band. This was the really going up and, and that's really fun. And I have great memories attached to all those records. And then there's other ones that are more stressful and surrounded by a bit more problems or just, yeah, they're difficult. They're more difficult to listen to. And for me, and but guys, I think there's good. Hmm? You guys still do stuff, right? Like I saw, in fact, I was at the yeah. store. There's a, you did an EP semi recently, right? Yeah, like, well, uh, yeah, in 2014 or something. And and actually, we're doing. They're they're going to Touch and Go is going to reissue soon this year. House of GVSB 25 year reissue. It's going to be double vinyl. So the second disc is basically a, a, a culmination of all of our singles and a lot of B sides from and a lot of comp tracks that we did all together on one record. It's going to come out on Touch and Go. And um, I love that record. And we're actually right now even like playing around with some songs. I mean, as we do sometimes, and we might do something more because we're going to play some shows next starting in February next year. Nice. Yeah. Cause, uh, and the soul side did that seven inch. Right. Gosh, and that was like the, and I, I thought that stuff was great. Uh, we talked I about that. So much fun. Yeah. I, I've had a great time. It's kind of, I think that actually it's kind of interesting. I think that the vinyl, I was talking to Corey from touch and go and different things like the vinyl world's kind of come back for some of these things. So in fact, a lot of the labels like discord and touch and go they're having a really hard time actually printing vinyl to demand. Because there's still, it's still, it's of course much smaller than, than the 90s or something, but it's like people want these things again. And it's kind of like, I think a lot of bands would th think about, well, you know what, we have fun doing it. So maybe, maybe there's a second chapter here to have just to, just to enjoy making music. I mean, and I take that really seriously, the idea of making music. I want to do something that's going to be good and stuff. I want to like, you know, it's, it's important that it's, that it's, I take it quite seriously. I don't want to do something if it's not going to be up to par from stuff we've done before. So these are things that we just talk about, but it's kind of fun that there's, and I think also the internet has still provided this sort of window to people being interested in these sort of bands that really weren't that popular um, like ourselves back in the day. And even probably fuels bands that like replacements was genuinely popular. I mean, they were a big band. It seemed to me working at tower in the late eighties, they were, they were like one of the biggest indie you know indie sounding bands or whatever um but probably the internet helps them too i would imagine the catalog and things like younger people are listening to it it's like you know uh, which is cool yeah yes. and like well like you said vinyl now it's like i'm i'm too in the process you know i had cds and now right. it's like instead of doing the whatever you know now it's like i got rid of cds and i have vinyl so I'm actually glad to hear about the, the Girls Against Boys reissue. I was looking on Discogs a couple months ago and adding stuff to my want list because I was like, oh, I would love these Girls Against Boys records on vinyl. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if did they reissue the first two touch and go ones already? They reissued no, they re only they reissued Venus Luxury number one, maybe, but we were just talking about the two. Um, it's actually hard to find some for some reason. I don't one of the guys in the band was saying that. Um that was also a while ago, and that was 
probably about 10 years ago or something. So that was before this new vinyl thing even kind of hyped yeah. up. And stuff. So they got to do all three. I think that you, you should be able to get that one somewhere, but you're right. Some of them are kind of expensive or some of them are just hard to find and they're not expensive. Um, I don't think Cruise Yourself was redone, but maybe they all will be eventually. I mean, I'm really excited about the House of GVSB one, especially about the second disc, especially about this. It's remastered by Bob Weston from Shellac and stuff. So it's sounding really, really great. And the B-sides are, are it's kind of cool to hear as a collection, you know, all together and stuff. Not to be plugging my band. <laughs> oh, that, me. I mean, that's why yeah, I do, you know, do, yeah. we're fans. We're fans. And like, I, I did, uh, I, I told you when we chat on Facebook, like I, by the time this comes out, the uh, end on end episode on Trigger Soul Side Trigger will be out, which Brian asked me to co-host because uh, Jeff couldn't make it. So that was oh, cool. That was fun. I think he talked to, we well, talked to you. I know on the first record, right? Right. And actually, and, uh, I was just talking. We have we have like a almost like a we have a bi-weekly Zoom between me and the guys in the band. And actually, Johnny, Alexis, and Bobby all from Soul Side all appear on that episode. Yeah. I think they were taped at different times that's really funny that's cool you're the co-host on that because yeah, yeah i like that podcast too i was listening to the fire party episode and i really really enjoyed it it's, it's, i was talking about that with the guys last night because it was our skype or our zoom evening and it was like it's cool to just hear people hear the people's voices again when they're talking and just it's, it's and, and all that music sounds kind of fascinating now again it's like it's sort of these bands that were approaching music not in a commercial way really and it's sort of a, this localized sort of experimental you know, music with limitation are just not professional musicians. Right. I mean, it's like there's some things that they, uh, the professional musician can't do because they just can't dumb themselves down that much it's, it's like they, they're just like i can't do that because that doesn't make any sense to me but it, it, it's it's like well but you're not hearing it the same way and, and the professional music can also be tiresome to listen to it's sometimes it's not fresh it's like it's you know yeah. and coming from dc i mean that and especially you know that that end on end pod uh had me kind of revisit all that stuff yeah because that, that that was my entry into punk and hardcore was Discord. Cool. You know, Discord right. and um, like SST. Right. You know, because of like Husker Du, which is another, you know, and, uh, you know, Black Flag and all that. But Discord, it's kind of crazy to see like the evolution. And that's what I liked about doing the pod on Revelation, too, is like they started off by putting out, you know, New York hardcore stuff. And then it went to, you know all the post hardcore post punk and stuff. And it's nuts to think of what an influence discord had on like, even on popular music. If you think about it, like, you know, emo came from. Yeah. To spring and embrace. Yeah. And then you have like, you know, to see these like bands that are on MTV, they call themselves emo. And then you'd read the interviews and they'd say that they're fans of, right. you know, the stuff that when you're a kid, you're just thinking like, Oh, right. to spring's a great band. Right. Just a local band. Right. Wow. It, well, it reminds me of like, so you're going back to, yeah, it's been back. I, that would have been, it's also label, label identity. I mean, back then, it, I remember definitely in the eighties, you know, one of the first things you do when you were shopping for records is like, look at what label it's on. And and if it was oh, on yeah. a label that you knew then that was a real indication to buy it. So if it's on whatever discord, touch and go, 
revelation or whatever. Any of those, that, that's kind of like, this is something I'm going to dig because I like this style of music and stuff. And, you know, I don't know if people still flip over to see, <laughs> see who, oh, which version of Universal is this coming out on? I mean, it doesn't have any association with how something's going to sound. In, in modern terms, I suppose, for the bigger companies, but. Yeah, no, although, but, um, although I will say in the, in the 90s, for whatever reason, DGC was the one where it had like so many good. I like, know. That, I know. That's the comp I was talking about, the DGC rarities where you had like, you know, Nirvana, Sonic Youth, Teenage Fan Club, the Posies, Sloan, yeah. just yeah. so many uh, bands, but they were like the only label, like, you weren't buying a Capitol Records. Right. That's exactly yeah. why we signed there. And that's why it was also so kind of crazy to us that in such a short time, something that seemed so successful musically could just get like absorbed into a corporate giant and basically disappear. It, it seemed almost unthinkable, but. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, looking back, it's funny to do these podcasts, especially from, you know, the standpoint of like, I wasn't there. You know, right. but like going historically and seeing like how different even the 80s and the 90s were like you talked yeah. about, like in the 80s, they seemed to give more chances. Like, you know, Husker Du did two major label albums. Replacements mm -hmm. did the four like we talked about. Uh, yes. You know, but then come the 90s, it was like you said, you get one shot. And if and you didn't make it, it. Yeah. Like that was yeah. it. Yeah, yeah th thinking some about what you were saying about label identity, I mean, that's kind of how I ended up getting into Husker Du, because I was like, oh, they're on SST, right? And like, so when I got it, I was a kid, and I was like, oh, this is going to sound like Black Flag, and it like very much didn't. Um, but I got into the replacements later, because, again, like, there wasn't like that very clear, like, indie label connection to them, as, like, as, as much as there was with a band like Husker Du. Yeah, like Twin Tone, I didn't. That and I didn't get in, I got into Husker Du way before replacements. You know, we talked about on here. Um, and I do think it was that label identity because yeah, right. Husker had the SST thing and replacements was like right. Twin Tone. Twin -tone. I, I twin -tone. Yeah, I always wondered that. It seemed like Twin Tone was more like an R&B label or something. Or what, what was Twin Tone? Was I think it was more like it wasn't known for that type of music. Exactly. You're right. SST was like everything was good on yeah. that. Husker Du again. And back to Minneapolis, who's could do, I remember, you know, replacements opened up, I think I might have, I liked replacements even better than who's could do, but, but listening the same times, I, I got into who's could do, I got into Soul Asylum, I got into all that stuff that was just these great rock records, and it was really different, it was a different sound in DC, I wasn't in, I don't know what the early punk stuff was like in the 80s, where those bands went was sort of, I thought, interesting in how different it was in the DC scene, number one. Number two, and I'm sure I'm not the only one to say this, I really feel like replacements and stuff, even as especially like with Nevermind and stuff, really that Minneapolis scene affected the, it was like pre-grunge, you know, it was like the grunge thing came in Seattle a little later and there's clear lines in there somewhere of like oh, this sort of, yeah. But it's yeah, funny because I saw this, I saw this interview with, uh, Kurt Cobain and it was one of the last ones he did probably in, around in utero it's on YouTube and they asked him um you know they said they said hey we're doing a, a documentary or like a special or something on the replacements like are you a fan and he was like 
I never really got into them. He's like them, Soul Asylum, like that whole thing. But it's yeah. funny because I always thought they owe so much to yeah. um, that. Like now, Green Day, on the other hand, like Billy Joe has said, like replacements in Husker Du was like his that the Minneapolis right. thing was his big thing. Like everybody kind of thinks like, oh, Green Day, they're pop punk, so they descendants and this and that. And he's like, no, it was all that Minneapolis stuff. But, yeah, that's really interesting. Oh, I remember I've seen like, of course, also I can't remember what's on the list, but like, of course, because Kirk Cobain's so legendary, seemed like you know the list where he made his favorite bands lists in his notebooks and things. I forget what's on there, but like Black Flags. I mean, it's kind of like there's a DC component, but I'm surprised that's. Yeah, I mean, I wonder. I wonder about that because I feel like it's, there's a lot of similarities between maybe not Nirvana if he wasn't a fan, but of the grunge thing. I mean. I don't think of I don't think of replacements as a grunge band, quote unquote. But I feel like there's a lot of things that came from that scene that sort of then definitely inspired the grunge thing with this. Even the way they dress, like if you look at yeah. the letter, yeah, B, even the way they dress, right? Over the, like, you know, like this, like you know, the, the the kind of well, back then it was also yeah, in the '80s, everything, all the touring bands, we would like drive around, and one of the big things to do was record shop, of course, and thrift closing shop we would go to all this, this the, the goodwill stores like in, in minneapolis or denver or chicago that was a big part of our day we'd go sift through all the old used clothes looking for stuff i mean that that whole fashion identity thing is pretty interesting it's like you're buying these really ridiculous clothes actually that are like two three sizes too big for you whatever you like something it's a bizarre thing but yeah all those things kind of coalesced into the grunge thing, of course, which Nirvana was the band that everyone could really get. And I think like those, in some ways, like the DC punk scene did not have a lot to do in my mind with like classic rock and type of stuff. I mean, like the Stones, Led Zeppelin, things like that. Whereas the grunge thing, it did, it did touch that. Yeah, like Led Zeppelin, they had the Led Zeppelin. Right, there was this thing where that, that marriage of those things was fine there, but... I think that there's a latent influence of Led Zeppelin, of course, or many, many other bands, even in the DC post-punk thing and sound, but it's not as, it's, it's not as forefront. It's, it's like, it's not one of the reasons why so many of these bands like let classic rock stuff bleeds through is because I teach, I've been, I teach guitar now and I've been teaching for 10, 10 years or so. And it's kind of interesting that like, it's the things that I grew up learning Led Zeppelin riffs, Stones, they're still the best things to teach if you want to learn guitar. They're the, they're, the, they're the kind of the go-to riffs that are really good to teach that really matter. Many things in terms of learning. So if you if everybody learns through that one cycle of that time, then of course that music carries on its influence over and over into different styles. So you have like, sure, um, I find that, I always find that kind of interesting that some of the modern rock music is, it's great rock music, but it's not Jimmy Page, you know, it's, it's not, you can't teach it as well. It's like, you can't get your teeth into the riff. The riff sounds like something amorphous where it's like, okay, playing that by yourself is not as fun as it is to play a Led Zeppelin song. It's like, right. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I see the, gr the grunt, like, yeah. especially like you think about Let It Be, you know, the Kiss cover on there. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's totally like, that's what, and I know that some of the band, like I know the Mud Honey guys, I think were big replacements fans and, I can bet, uh, yeah. maybe Soundgarden, if I'm not mistaken. So it just Kurt Cobain, right. I think, just had weird taste, but it was cool. Like his his list yeah. of the top fifty, I was looking recently. He had the Faith Void split. 
Right. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Rights of Spring. He had yeah. Rights of Spring. Right. Um, and like Void, think like, you know, there's another great example of a band that like the the character, the charm of the record is like what you hear on the on the record itself, right? There's not like a big overthought production of it. Right, exactly. That's that's kind of what I mean. It's yeah, right. It's like you you have a I mean this is a big topic in DC. And it's something that sticks with you sort of forever is, you know, the early days of recording, like it was it's like with Discord and stuff, it was like really not a, not even five days. It's like you go in for one day. I mean, it was like you make a record in two days. So even the concept of an overdub was like kind of like a glamorous idea. You know, like I remember doing overdubs for, tr for the Trigger album, the Soul Side one. And Ian, who was producing that was there, he was kind of like, ah, Scott, you know, are you sure are you really sure you want to do an overdub? And I was like, uh, actually, in this case, yeah, I do want to, you know, I wanted to do just one or two, whatever, but it was, it, it was, it was something that needed to be discussed because the fact of doing an overdub was kind of like breaching into the world of sort of not professionalism, but like cheating kind of, it's kind of like, it's supposed, right. to, it's supposed to be, you, you perform the thing. I mean, I remember hearing that Minor Threat even famously like recorded with the singing live, you know, so basically there was no vocal overdubbing. The first overdubbing, of course, is vocal. But the first in the chain of recording, the first thing that became standard to overdub was voice. So you would right. do a scratch vocal and then you sing the real vocals later. And then that became even by the 90s with Girls Against Voice stuff, you do a scratch vocal and a scratch guitar. And then you like do the guitars and the voiceover in a way where you can make them beefier or whatever. And in this way, things started to basically where we're at now is when you record, you're basically getting a drum track and then you're, and then you're, you're using what you're using, whatever sounds great, including hopefully you can include mistakes unless you have, unless you're working with someone who wants to erase all the mistakes. Cause some of the mistakes are the things I love best. And, and about, and this goes right back to replacements. Some of the greatest things on these records are these moments that like, they actually don't sound that great. I mean, it sounds yeah. like a mistake someone made, yeah, and that's one of the coolest parts because it is music after all. So if you're making notes and one note's wrong or something, it actually sounds. It kind of reminds you that you're listening to music and not listening to some uh, plastic um, pop song that's all vocal orientated. It's it's like you're listening to raw musicians performing stuff in some cases inaccurately, and it's it it, it reminds you that that's right. This is music. It's not like a product only. It's it's. Yeah, and think I mean to connect it even you know further back into the replacements too. Thinking about some of the flourishes that were added to um, "Please to Meet Me," that I think the band even themselves was kind of ultimately a little hot and cold on. Um, there's like that like uh, funny like the at the beginning of um, what I don't know, um, and there's okay right a couple other things on the record that um, I think Bob May writes about this in Trouble Boys that they were. Yeah, um, like Jim Dickinson about. added stuff after, and I don't okay. think they were thrilled uh, right. with it. Well, I guess, doesn't that record have a song with horns on it, too, or no? Yeah, Can't Hardly mm -hmm. Wait. Mm -hmm. Can't Hardly Wait. What a great song. God, this great is song. The, the strings on that, too. Wasn't that, like, something that they didn't know was coming until Yeah, was... like, there was definitely, like, I think they knew about the horns. I could be mistaken. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to uh, check that, fact check myself. But I know that there was stuff that... Jim Dickinson added after they left, like right. these flourishes, you know, Memphis touches or whatever. Um, I would have they, never known that 
that's interesting. I thought they were doing that. That, that was, that was self-motivated within the band. That's interesting. Yeah. And then, you know, the next, so that then the next record of course was super produced. Right. Uh, Don't yeah. tell a soul. And right. the production of it was really complicated. Um, well, and well, and the mix, you know, the mix, yeah. it was the mix, I guess that really put it over the top. And then of course you get the final one all shook down which is basically like a Paul solo album, but that's got a lot of like acoustic stuff. And there's the funny story in, you know, talking about major label stuff in trouble boys, Bob Meir talks about how, when they turned in Tim, the label was like, this is kind of too abrasive for uh, radio. Mm -hmm. And then at the time of all shook down, it was like right before Nevermind. And, you know, at that point, I think, you know, Jane's Addiction was huge and Faith No More and stuff that was heavier. And they were like, yeah, this isn't, this is too mellow for the radio. <laughs> it, went from, it went from too abrasive to too mellow within like whatever time. Yeah, yeah. like that's such a like four or five years. So it just shows how the climate can really affect, uh, you know, even though both those records have amazing songs. Mm-hmm. Right. It's I think it also, right shows, it also shows how thing to hey it also shows how really the indie labels of those times had much in some ways sure they had their bottom line to worry about but they had much more chance to release something that's crazy or insane sounding because there's a lot less pressure monetary it's like let's do it and then it kind of breaks the mold you know some, something comes out that like rocks people and you're like that shouldn't be satisfied why is that why are people really getting into this? And it's because, well, someone dared to do it. It's like, you know, and, and I think that that's back to the indie label things. One of those things that, I mean, I, or I even think about what's, um, um, other things that happened even after, after Nirvana. Um, it's like rock bands can come out and like do something that's uh, like, the, or, or like the song seven nation army, you know, by um, white stripes. Yeah. White stripes. I mean, Everyone was being like, oh, you know, that's not going to work. It's kind of like a classic rock, massive track. It's a, It just breaks the mold, you know, it's, again. It's like, it's it's reminiscent of all these things, but the way it's done, the production. And again, that record was recorded at this little place I know. My, my ex-wife had a punk band and it was in from France. And that was this toe-rag toe studio. This was in London. It's still in London where the guy only uses analog gear and, and they recorded that record there. And it's only eight tracks, you know, just like, that's it. That's eight awesome. track, total limitation. They even had to take a second track. They even had to burn something on the second track for the car solo. Cause there wasn't room, you know, so eight, <laughs> eight tracks. And it's like amazing how that sounds. With and it's tracks. on the radio, it's on the radio, right. you know, it was yeah, like it's on the radio. So it, it's basically like everyone says you can't do this. And then someone does it and you're like, actually you can do it. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, see, it's crazy too. Like I was thinking how good, like so much of that DC stuff sounds. Doing the stuff yeah. at like inner ear, like I mean, mm-hmm, even the, mm-hmm. the minor threat stuff sounds so good still. And that was what four track probably. Yeah, um, it was so. Don's basement is legendary. I mean, in the beginning, it was like he was just like. It's also so interesting that relationship between Don and Ian and the Discord thing because Don was not a punk guy. I mean, he was just like a, he was a triathlete. Triathlete. I mean, he was like a, he was like a more like suburban guy, like and just like his studio in the basement. Yeah, it was four track or maybe then eight track or something. Always tape and so again, those also the things about overdub weren't necessarily decisions that were based on like trying to be too. Um, just like you know, trying to do too many superfluous 
nonsensical things. It was also a I think it froze. Like, there's only eight tracks. So if you really want to do an overdub, we don't really, you know, you really need to think about it, which also those limitations helped a lot. Um, you're right. Cause you don't like sit there. And even now everybody has, you know, I have in my, on my laptop, like a studio that's like, <laughs> I'm not even very good at it, but the, you know, the, the things I have, Don would have never had, you know, in the, I mean, I can like multi-track 15 guitars and like add all kinds of, all just in my house, you know, yeah. but, but the more stuff I add, the less it, it is the, the least it's sort of at a certain point, it's cool. But then at a certain point, it just starts to be like, just so dense and heavy. You just don't need it. So you, I think you kind of go back in home recording, like to sort of start something simple then you add a bunch then you strip it back and you know, back in those days there wasn't time to strip it back so you're right just the sound the sound of like don's studio in suburban dc and even the toe rag one in london i was talking about was like it's a good mic good mic placement on a guitar through an amp and it's like it yep. sounds amazing yeah like it's, it's, it's <laughs> great it's and like i said it's crazy how much of the the stuff, especially with Discord and Don, held up record. I mean, like yeah. I'm thinking about like you know the first Dag Nasty record. Like that sounds yeah. massive, mm -hmm. and yeah, like and and it just was done. Like you said, like just probably eight tracks or whatever, and yeah. it still sounds great to this day. And um, even Minor Threat, like when I listen to Minor Threat, you're so right. It's like I feel like it sounds like punk, but almost at a certain point nowadays, the sound quality is so good it sounds like performance art or something. I mean, it's, it's basically like almost supersedes music because it's so streamlined and so definitively precise. And, and it's a whole other character of music. That's not like this kind of like foggy fucked up punk sounding recording. It's like kind of like pristine in that way. Hey guys, I'm, I'm down to, I'm down, I'm running low on batteries. So we probably got to close it out. Pretty sure, soon. No, that's fine. I was, okay. was going to say this, uh, I guess we'll close. do you have a favorite what's your favorite album i know we sort of touched on it i feel like i could maybe guess yes. but uh do you have a favorite record and song yeah okay my yeah my favorite record from placements is is still let it let it be even though i like so many of the records but that's the one from start to finish that i'm so down with and love every track and one of my i have too many favorite songs to mention but i'll mention one favorite song and because I like this, I think this also talks about the replacement's personality a little bit, sort of um, also in line of what we've been talking about, is Favorite Thing. Like, Favorite Thing is such a great song in my mind because it's like, the construction of the song is very interesting. And it really has that, like, Paul Westerberg, the tragic hero kind of thing. And, like, he's it starts out kind of awesome guitar riffs and some, different lyrics and stuff. And then when he gets to that big part, the you're my favorite thing, it's so anthemic, it's so massive, that it's like, wow, it's really powerful, emotively speaking, the kind of band is grungy and, and there too, but it's, it's, not, it's not polished sound. So it's like a raw emotive feeling. And then typical of the replacements at the very end, they have to put in the kind of addendum, like, it's like, it's, you are my favorite thing at the end. It's like, thing, thing, once in a while, you know, they have to put in the kind right. of like, dismissal of the pure romance thing, which I think is so replacements and so much of what's sort of, you know, endearing about them as time goes on. It's like this sort of punk identity, but then also this like romantic kind of tragic hero thing. And this kind of 
finding this musical vision in that time and about it, it's so in all those songs so all of them really yeah and i also i love that rec the recording of let it be yeah for the reasons we talked about because it just sounds yeah. like four guys in a garage and they just yeah. happen to record it and from that first guitar on i will dare it's like and that song it's really i will dare is a great song and also so simple so 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 evocative like um yeah, just like punk rock, you know, making music is a dare as well. And that song is kind of about, about meeting people, but it's, they're also daring to be there in the studio and, and do this thing. So it's like a self-reflexive moment. In, and it's a, yeah, that record is super powerful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of uh, yeah, thank the you, day Scott. to speak with us. And we'll hopefully put this up in the next, like I'll send you uh, sure. the link and stuff. We'll put it up in the next week or so. Right on. You guys, it was really fun. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks for writing. And I'm so happy I've been able to do it. I, I haven't had a chance to talk about my love of replacements before. So it's really been fun. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Scott. All right. Thanks a lot. Cool. All right. Well, that's it for this time, folks. Thanks for listening. We're looking forward to you joining us next time on our future explorations <laughs> of this essential Midwestern punk. You want to tell them what we're doing for episode 19, Greg? Yeah, so we decided to um, move back into Sugar World, um, which sounds delicious. Um, <laughs> So we are going to be talking about the 1993 uh, EP, Beaster. So be on the lookout for that. Stoked we promise, that. we promise there will not be a two month gap in between. Um, but I'll tell you what, if you're listening to this, leave us a rating and a review and tell us how much you've missed us. And that will... Um, on iTunes or whatever it is you uh, people listen on and we will see that and it will inspire us to make the time. Yeah. To kick, kick us talking. in the gear. All right. I love it. See you next time. Please.